0: This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block.
1: How often do you wake up in the middle of the night wondering how are we going to mitigate against the risks that fall outside of our regular general coverage from our property and liability services? risks such as supply chain interruptions cybersecurity, political risks and more all of these are bothersome to every one of us and today to answer all those questions ed bryan ed welcome to the show thanks for having me on joel i appreciate it this is a uh, a complicated area it's a very troubling area for a lot of us i mean the things these special risks uh, that are kind of they fall into the cracks of most of our regular insurance policies um so you got some, uh, some plan here. What's the secret sauce for dealing with some of these uh, issues?
0: Sure. No, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, let's just start with this. Um, insurance policies on the traditional insurance side are getting, they're getting larger and larger, right? They're adding more pages to your traditional insurance. The joke is they're not adding more coverages, right? They're adding more exclusions, right? <laughs> um, I think all of us can, can really sympathize and empathize with the fact that over the last three years, we've really seen the traditional insurance has its limitations right? It does a good job covering the types of things that it can. A traditional insurance company, they have the data and the loss ratios to do a great job with your tangible assets, right? Your buildings, your your vehicles, your general liability, those types of things. But the truth of the matter is business owners all over the the, the globe take risks and have risks in their business that traditional insurance either can't or won't cover, right? And so the truth of the matter is there is an alternative risk financing tool that's been out there for about 40 years. It's been around since the mid-80s. That allows businesses to, in essence, self-insure and set aside funds for those types of
1: risks that fall outside of traditional insurance. All right, so let, let me people. let me stop Go you right ahead. there. Let, let me because uh, th- th- I don't want to have too big a chunks because this is sure. complicated, right? You know, so yeah, sure. Deal with one thing at a time. Um, every time I think that an insurance policy includes an exclusion, that seems like an opportunity for an upsell to a rider. So you know every one of these risks, like the cybersecurity risk or uh, special property risk or supply chain risk or you know political upheaval, whatever the issues are um, aren't those just if they're exclusions in one policy aren't they potentially just riders that you can abide in another policy I mean I mean so I'm trying to understand why we yeah. need what you're doing do the other insurance companies even offer those coverages?
0: for sure that's a good question and so the, the honest truth of the matter is twofold one. You may be able to get that coverage, but it's so expensive. It's cost prohibitive. Let me just give you a quick example. <clears throat> worked with a small to mid-sized business that was looking for a specific type of E&O coverage, right? And they went out to the market and the best the market could do, they said for $800,000 in premium, we'll give you a million dollar policy. Why would you do that, right? I mean, at that point, why wouldn't you self-insure and take some of the advantages that big businesses are doing, right? So that's number one. A lot of times it's so expensive, you wouldn't do it. And then number two, frankly, a lot of times you cannot get the coverage, or if you get it, they're riddled with holes still. So if, you, if, you'll, if you'll permit me, let me share another example. <clears throat> we think about business interruption insurance over the last three years. The truth of the matter is we look at what happened with COVID. A lot of insurance companies say that that wasn't a physical event, right? There, was, there had to be a triggering event, right? Where insurers are saying, well, I was shut down, I wasn't able to do business, my business was interrupted. But if you go look at a lot of traditional insurance policies, they will say that business interruption is only triggered. That policy is only triggered if there's a fire, a flood, an earthquake, etc. And the argument that's still being made in court today is that COVID wasn't a physical event; it was a pandemic, and many of those insurance policies had exemptions for pandemics in them.
1: So, all right. So, um, so you're saying even the writers aren't aren't frequently that great, and you'd be right. better off to uh, to self-insure, put some money aside for your own protection. Uh, and uh, and and there's a, a tax-deferred way to, or a tax-incentivized way, maybe even better, uh, to make that happen. So explain what that is. Sure,
0: yeah, and, and so you hit it on the head. Uh, the truth of the matter is, so I touched on a little bit, 831B is a piece of the tax code. We're all familiar with 401K. We know what 401Ks are. It was a piece of the tax code that was put into place in the mid to late 70s, and there's a tax incentive attached to it to set aside funds for future retirement for business owners and for their employees. Right, And so it's a way that the government drove behavior, right? They wanted to be able to drive behavior, so they offered a tax incentive. Our government does a great job incenting taxpayers one way or the other with tax incentives. So 831B is simply a piece of the tax code as well, was put into place in 86 by Reagan. And it was really a way for, it was designed for small to mid-sized businesses to set aside money for those liabilities that fell outside of their traditional risk. Not to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but in the in the early to mid 80s, there was a liability crisis in the insurance world. Um, if you think back, or if you were a business owner or, or an executive in the business, a lot of insurance companies were adding exclusions, they were increasing premiums, deductibles were going up. And so a lot of them, especially those small to mid-sized businesses were having trouble getting the insurance that they needed right to do business. And so that's when Congress came in and said, hey, we're gonna put an incentive in place here to set aside money for that rainy day, and the incentive is when you pay premiums or you pay into this 831B. If you take advantage of it, then that's a tax deduction, or it's a, it's an expense to the business, right? And those funds aren't taxed when they go into this 831B. It's been around for a long time. Big business got a hold of it really early. All the Fortune 500s, Fortune 1000s have been doing this for decades. But much like the 401K, it was big business, right? If you think about the 401K when it first started, it was only enterprise level companies. A thirty-one B's kind of followed a similar trajectory, just in the last ten to fifteen years, and especially in the last three years, business owners and business managers are starting to say, "Holy cow, I've got risk to fall outside my traditional insurance. I've got to find a way to set money aside for those rainy days."
1: So, what what size companies uh, is this suitable for? I mean, what what's kind of like not suitable? Where does it start to make sense?
0: Sure. So, you know, I would tell you, you know, it's a, it's a fluid situation based on the state a lot of times or, or where, where a business is. But I would tell you that our, we have clients that are grossing, that own businesses that gross two to three million. And then we have clients that are grossing, you know, 500 to 600 million in revenue. Right. So I realize that's a huge delta. Our average companies probably grow somewhere between five and 20 million in revenue. Right. Um, usually they're privately held. Um, you know, closely held family businesses, um, generational businesses. Uh, but if you take a look, I, w- I would say this: if you're grossing two million plus, um, you
1: probably should at least understand what an eight thirty-one B is. Okay, and um, and how much money are different size companies putting into these deals? Yeah,
0: so so the tax code itself, when it was put into place in '86, in you could set aside up to one point two million on an annual basis into into an eight thirty-one B. 2015, the PATH Act, it changed that. Um, they put an inflation rider in there. They moved it to 2.2. As we stand in today, the lovely word inflation, right, that we're all talking about nonstop, um, you're able to set aside about 2.4 million on an annual basis You do an 831B. Now we have an internal control mechanism. We're very conservative when we, when we do these things, when we set these things up. Um, we usually like to say no more than 10% of gross revenue on an annual basis could go into an 831B.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk about what the mechanics of this is. Cause I've, I've heard, of, I've heard of the, uh, these, these self-insurance deals and, and sizable substantial companies are doing this. So I know this is a real deal. I mean, I know this is not uh, you know, some kind of a, a scam of some, I recognize that this is a real thing. And I, I am familiar with the, uh, with part of the, of the tax code that deals with the insurance companies, which is the 800 series. So that's kind of where we are. That's what we're dealing with. What, um, as far as the uh, these things, a lot of them are being done like offshore. So I, the question that I have is, if if this is a domestic tax law and it, said it encourages companies to mitigate their own risks so that they're not fully dependent on insurance companies, why are these things being done offshore or 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 in outside of the uh, jurisdiction of the United States? Sure.
0: Yeah. So so originally, when these things started, the reason why a lot of these things found a home offshore, specifically in the Caribbean, right, Jamaica. Bermuda, um, the Caymans, et cetera. And there's still a very, very big industry there, right? With these, And the big reason was there were some favorable tax treatments for moving those funds offshore. And at the same time, if you were procuring insurance that you couldn't get on the open market, a lot of times those business owners said, hey, I don't want the state department of insurance to regulate my insurance purchasing for, for risks that I can't get in my state regardless, right? So they decided to go offshore, send those funds overseas and be able to Procure insurances that they couldn't get in their states. And they said, we don't want the state insurance departments to regulate that. And so that's really initially why it went that way. Um, as the industry has matured, um, you'll see big business, the Fortune 500s, they still all go offshore. Uh, but there are some challenges, especially in that small to middle market space with re domesticating funds, filing additional uh, disclosures with the IRS, right? And then um, some of the requirements of those entities or those, 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 uh, those countries um, that say, hey, you know, you're going to have to leave 20 percent of your premiums here at at, at any one time. And so it ties up cash. Right. So there's a benefit because it's a cost. It's a cost benefit. The costs are lower than
1: doing it domestically. And there are other benefits. But at the same time, it comes with its own set of of complications for sure. All right. So just thinking about the mechanics of this. So a company is going to set up a separate entity. They're going to put it in a, uh, you know, in whatever place you tell them to put it. Uh, and my understanding is you guys don't use the offshore. You have a different mechanism, right. which we can get to in a minute. But they set, off a, set up an entity and they fund it. So basically, let's say they're putting in a million dollars a year into this thing. And over a handful of years, they got five or ten million dollars in a bank account in case of an emergency of a cybersecurity risk or some kind of blowout of some kind. Uh, does that money just sit there waiting for them to access for an emergency? Or what happens to the dollars that are sitting there? Yeah, good question. So so while, so
0: think about it in the principles of insurance, right? So so these policies are one-year policies, right? So when let's say you put a million a year in, right? So that million dollars goes in. It goes into an account in the name of that 831B, right? Um, the business owner or whoever the business owner designates the signer on the account, those funds can be managed, right? So they can be put to work. Think what a traditional insurance company would do. They're going to, with at-risk premiums, going to invest in things like stocks and bonds and mutual funds, fairly conservative types of investments, What they're not going to do is go out and buy crypto, right? They're not going to go buy Bitcoin with that because those funds are at risk of claims, but the money absolutely can be managed. And much like a traditional insurance company, at the end of each policy year, minus any claims, whatever's
1: left over is is surplus or underwriting profit, right? To that 831B at that point. Wait, wait, wait. Yep, go ahead. So the entity that you set up and put in the foreign location actually is an insurance company. Absolutely. You actually create an insurance company And my guess is that's what your company does is you do the whole mechanism of setting up this little insurance company that a company actually owns and and then it funds. So those dollars are always sitting there for the company to be able to access. Absolutely, and, and so let's touch on that real quick. So I'm assuming most of
0: your listeners are familiar with the four hundred one k, right? We touched on that a little bit, but but if you have a four hundred one k third party administrator, um, if they're familiar with how those operate when you when they when they look at the four hundred one k, we do the same thing with eight thirty one b. So you're absolutely right, right? And those funds do sit there, right? But once again, once those policies expire, those funds are no longer at risk of claims, and any insurance company lives for surplus right? They want those funds. That's why when we look at, at stadiums and big buildings all over the world, those, those sports stadiums, those arenas, et cetera, they have names of insurance companies on them, because they love that surplus. right? So the benefit is here to the business owner, especially the small in business, business owner, we flip the script, right and say, okay, instead of just paying premiums to a third party that you're never going to get back, why not enjoy some of the underwriting profits that, that of risk that you can't get coverage for on the open market, right? And then at that point. To your point, you can access those funds. You can loan the funds back to yourself. You
1: can dividend okay. against them, et cetera. So this is starting to become clear. So you put the so you set up an insurance company. You pay premiums to your own insurance company. Uh, at the end of the term, if you don't use the insurance uh, that you bought, basically bought by putting in it in. So when you when you move the million dollars into the insurance company, you're effectively in air quotes buying a policy uh, of insurance because that's what insurance companies sell as policies. if if it expires a year from now, then that money becomes available uh, to uh, to the insurance company to distribute as profits or whatever it wants to 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 the owners. And the owner of the insurance company is the company that set it up. Yes. Yeah, many times. So I think what you're saying is that rather than pay money to a third party insurance company, that's going to keep your surplus, pay it to yourself and you someday may get that surplus back if it doesn't get spent on claims. Absolutely. And at okay. that point, and, and, yeah, so that's the thing, right, is that the, we
0: always talk about this. And once that funds, those funds get to surplus, then that's when the business can start to leverage that asset, right? Um, via loans or, or to, they decide to declare a dividend, right? So instead of, you know, having to go out and get a loan from a bank, say we're going to take a loan from our insurance company. And by the way, this is what Walmart, Google, Apple, Nike, all of them do. They loan themselves funds out of their insurance companies to go out and grow or buy out a competitor or whatever the case may be. That's where that financial stability and strength comes from from leveraging tools like this.
1: Yeah this this is a pro, I'm catching on to it now. It's 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 taking oh. a minute here, but I'm starting to catch on. I hope the listeners are catching on because this is kind of a, a tricky deal. But uh, the money goes into the insurance company that your company owns, and then you're basically paying premiums to yourself. And then uh, over years, the money accumulates into uh, pretty substantial sums, and and that can uh, eventually you know be clawed back in some way as dividends or some other payout mechanism so the government really has set up a mechanism for companies uh to uh to basically pay themselves and self-insure and give them additional protection so that they're not dependent on insurance companies that only provide half the policy exactly you've got it got it so what's the uh what's the ratio like uh like how much can a company expect to save if they put a million bucks into a policy of their own coverage and they didn't have any claims, which most of the time you don't. Uh, number one, uh, you know, what's the ratio of money that comes back to the company? And then secondly, uh who who does the calculations about how much money should go in and how much how much risk they're actually taking?
0: right. so so great question. That's actually what we do, right as the third party administrator, right so we calculate all of that. We work with them. We underwrite them. We'll take a look at their risk. We're going to work with their trusted advisors, whether it's their CPA, maybe their CFO, their controller, uh, the business owners themselves. And we're going to take a look at their risk profile. Right. We've been doing this for 12 years. We've, We've done a lot of these things, suffice it to say. And the truth of the matter is, is we're going to take a look at that and help them identify some of those risks they may not even be aware of. And just in real round numbers for you, I would say if a business doesn't have a claim of its own, Um, on an annual basis or in a given year they could expect back somewhere between 85 and 95 cents on the dollar of the premiums that they put in so if you put a million dollars in you're going to get back somewhere probably between 850 fifty and nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars back right on an annual basis so you can start to see the savings potential and the goal with this is on on the good years we always talk about this from a risk mitigation standpoint let's park some aside right let's let's take some off the top Let's take put it into a tax advantaged vehicle, and then if we have an event that threatens the cash flow or we have a bad year, we have those funds there to bring and pull back into the business. Instead of cash flows going up and down like this, the goal would be to level them out. If that makes sense,
1: are companies ever tempted to uh, buy regular insurance or mitigate regular insurance risks and not just those extraordinary ones that you start out? I mean, why why do you have to differentiate between general risks and special risks? Right. No, that's a great question. And and, and absolutely, the answer is yes. And so we have
0: vehicles as well for larger size entities that can take on their traditional risks. So you start to look at general liability, workers' compensation insurance, commercial auto, um, excess risk umbrella policies, those types of things, you absolutely can. And that's what big business has been doing for a long time. They are financing those types of, of insurances through these types of mechanisms, right? So we can do both. Most of our clients, this, this is the thing that we always put out, especially the small to small and mid-sized businesses when we're talking, right? From a risk consulting standpoint is, take a look at what you're paying in premiums and then look at your coverages and then ask yourself, if you look at your claims ratios as well, if you're a well-run, mid-sized business that has low claims ratios on say your workers comp and your general liability, you may want to look at self-insuring those. However, for example, if you've got a bunch of vehicles on the road and you have a lot of claims, you may not want to take that risk on yourself. So you're absolutely right. You can start to move some of those more, more traditional risks into a vehicle like this. The question is, and, and the, what we always say where the rubber hits the road is, do you want to? And is it a smart risk calculation? Is it is it a smart risk for a
1: business to take? You know, one thing that um am sitting here thinking, I'm thinking like Hertz, Hertz, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a sticker inside the car, self-insured policy number, so and so. And, and they probably are doing this exact same thing. When Absolutely. an offshore account, they got their own company. They're paying money to themselves. If they don't, uh, you know, pay out in claims and they pull the money back and, and they save money, basically save money. The yeah. difference between Hertz big companies and, you know, uh, you know, whatever little companies like, uh, you know, companies that are privately held and, you know, I don't know, even up to a billion dollars. I mean, those, those kind of companies. Sure they don't tend to have the same kind of discipline that large companies have that are always professionally managed. So my question is, if you have to pay 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 grand a month, or whatever the premium number is, oh, we don't have the money this month, we'll just skip this month. If you're not paying to a third party and you're at risk of cancel, do you find that companies just don't behave themselves and (laughs) do what they're supposed to do? (laughs)
0: Um, You know, here's what I would say is by and large, the types of business owners and types of businesses that we've been engaged with over the last 12 years, we don't see that happen. I mean, we've seen it happen great once in a while, but the truth of the matter is is that these are sophisticated business owners, they're entrepreneurs, they're risk takers. What we always say is "Let's, let's err on the side of caution, right? To your point, everybody wants to say, well, we're going to put away as much as we can. Well, let's find a realistic number because what we don't want to do is exactly what you just suggested. We don't want to hamstring the cash flow of the business, right? And so that's why as a third party, they are paying that to us initially, right? And so we are the gatekeeper to keep this thing compliant. We're just we're going to operate just like a traditional third party administrator. If you don't pay your premiums, guess what? You're going to get a phone call. You're going to get an email. We're going to talk about those things, right? I can think of on one hand, maybe the total amount of times in the last 12 years we've had issues. So very rarely does it happen because they start to realize the power of the tool, and they realize the all of the benefits to themselves down the road. And so you'll find that a lot of business owners, we have to kind of pull the reins back and say, hold on, right? You know, we, we've got internal control mechanisms, There's the, the the numbers that are in place with the tax code. So we want to make sure we keep them compliant there. But it's, it's usually the other way, right? They want to pay too much. We're like, we have to slow you down, keep you compliant, and make sure we're doing this right.
1: So we started out by talking about these extraordinary risks. And I imagine that we talked about extraordinary risks because that's what keeps the premiums, is the amount that gets transferred to the insurance company as low as possible. Uh, and as we start getting into more general risks, the numbers start getting bigger. So do you find that companies start small and as they kind of catch on to how this works, they're pouring more money in over time? Absolutely. Yes.
0: And that's, it's funny you bring that up because the truth of the matter is a lot of businesses will dip their toe in right for year one or year two. And then they start to realize to your point, the power of self-insuring, especially if they're well run, right? If they have good loss ratios, good safety programs in place, they run a, a good business. All of a sudden it's like, well, what about this? What about that? And they start to look at all of the risks and that light bulb goes off and they say, holy cow, why wouldn't we be doing this? You know, maybe I've paid $2 million in premiums over the last five years to a third-party insurance company and I've had a $130,000 claim. Well, who's winning, right, at that point, right? Why wouldn't you at least take a layer of that risk and put it into your own 831B and say, hey, we're going to bet on ourselves because we want some of that reward on the back end. And and I'm I'm betting as a business owner, a business manager, we're going to win more often than not. And if we have a bad year, we have that rainy day fund set aside to go fight that
1: fight. Do do companies combine their insurance companies, or is it one to one? One company, one insurance, one insurance. Uh, eight, yeah, one
0: 831 one, one b per. Unless I guess I would say think about um, think about auto dealers. So auto dealers are kind of the kings of this type of a risk financing mechanism. You kind of hit it on the head when you talked about hurts. But if you go to any auto dealer and they sell you a service agreement or an extended warranty, you know any of those types of things. Well, guess what? They've got eight thirty one bs off on the side, and they're segmenting their risk out. Right, so maybe they've got. Boards in one insurance company, they've got Chevy's in another, BMW's in another, uh, service agreements in another. So they will end up with three or four or five or how many ever the business legitimately needs. And so depending on the types of risks and the volume of risk, businesses can sometimes end up with multiple insurance companies.
1: And you could, you could totally understand that because uh, number one, the, uh, you know, liability, you have a limited liability, you know, I mean, you have a potentially big problem, but you know, like a warranty, how about what the biggest thing could be an engine for five grand or something? Just, it, it's exactly. a limited number. You put your arms around and that hardly ever happens. And these end up being very profitable uh, policies for these companies. So uh, they can even add more juice to their profit by, by setting these things up uh, independently and not running them through a third party is what I'm hearing. Exactly.
0: Yeah, no, and and think about it. I mean, to be honest with you, if you go to try to buy furniture, you go to Best Buy or Amazon, you try to buy something, what pops up? You want a protection plan? You want an extended warranty? warranty? You want to know why? Because we all know, right? The truth of the matter is they they can tax defer a percentage of those profits, right? And not pay tax on them, send them into that vehicle. They know what their claims ratios are, right? They know that we're going to put significantly more into this thing than our claims are ever going to be it becomes a very profitable vehicle. You're exactly right. That's what auto dealers do. And if you look around, it's all around us. It's just now we're bringing it to the small middle market.
1: So these 831B deals are really, uh, they're pretty pervasive. We just never knew what they were. Exactly. Exactly. One of the best kept secrets. This uh, Yeah, this is a good episode. I'm glad that you're sharing that that with us. So what does it cost to set one of these deals up? Sure.
0: So, you know, I'll tell you what we charge and I'll tell you what it used to be, right? So we charge $5,000 uh, to set one of these things up and then it's $5,000 each year thereafter as the admin fee, right? So, so it's, it's pretty, you know, there's a, that's a cost to it. Absolutely. But if we were to talk 10 to 15 years ago, it would have been 25,000 or 50 or maybe even a hundred, right? So much like the whole, okay, they were very expensive to set up initially or uh, and so we've kind of come down in the last 10 to 15 years. We haven't kind of, we have. And so that's the fee. And then depending on premiums, you know, we'll retain a percentage of the premium anywhere between three to 10% based on premium volumes. And so, you know, there's a cost associated with it. um, But it's one of those things where, like I said, 10 to 15 years ago, it would have been significantly more expensive to do it. And that's why small to mid-sized businesses really haven't looked at this. You know, if you weren't grossing $50 $100 10 to 15 years ago, we sat down in the room and I said, hey, it's going to cost a quarter million dollars to set up. You might have
1: thought I was crazy, right? So much like the 401k has come down in cost, 831b costs have come down as well. So, is it possible for companies to, let's say, bifurcate their property and their liability and say we want to buy liability insurance because that could be unlimited, but we'll uh, we'll we'll self-insure the property risks. So in other words, if, we're, if the building burns down, we'll take the risk of that. But if uh, but if somebody falls and hurts himself badly, we want to you know we want to buy traditional insurance for that. Does the companies do that? All the all day long. Yep, they they'll, they'll take the
0: yeah. They'll take the risks that they know they have good loss ratios in, and they'll say, hey, we're going to self insure that because we're going to bet on ourselves there. And then, for example, you know, you, you get a, a, a commercial auto policy, and let's say you got fifty trucks on the road, and you know you have you know you have claims, or your risk there is higher. Well, let's push that off onto a third party insurance company. Let's let them take that risk for the premium, but we'll self insure the risks that we know we're going to win on.
1: So so how are companies thinking about this? Is it controllable risks? The risks that I control, I'll self-insure. The risks I can't control, I'll push away. Is that kind of how they think about it? Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean,
0: or the other thing is, that, hey, can I not, if I can't get coverage on the open market, well, then I have better set on the side for a rainy day, right? So some of those things that, like COVID, we go back to that, I hate to beat that horse, that dead horse, but the truth of the matter is this, is right, with COVID, all of a sudden, business found out, hey, we're non-essential, right? We've heard that term, right? I got shut down. Right. Well, if that's something that's out of my control. I better set aside some money for a, a, a third party business interruption or a contingent business interruption or political risk, things that are outside of my control, then absolutely. Right. But on the traditional insurance side, you're right. You know, if it's one of those things where it's general liability or it's uh, an excess risk or a property, to your point, if my building burns down, I'll take that risk. And there, are the, in fact, I talked to a business owner just in the last week that said, Hey, I'll take the risk of my building burning down, but I'm worried about my auto. So he left his auto with the traditional insurance carrier, put his property
1: into into an eight thirty one b. Yeah, makes it makes a great amount of sense. What are some of the industries you've seen uh, do this successfully? So you, what
0: you'll see is you can apply eight thirty one b to any industry, but but where we're seeing the most growth is construction. Anybody that's in the construction space,
1: uh, transportation, uh, medical. Um, you know, what, you what, about, are the, what are these guys putting into the eight thirty one Bs? What part? What part of the risk?
0: Uh, so you're seeing general liability that seems to be a big one, or property is a big one, and then and then all of those other unfunded liabilities that we talked about: political risk, supply chain interruption. If you're a manufacturer, um, you know everyone's dealing with supply chain issues right now. Right. So, you know, set aside money for those risks. You know, for example, let's say you can't get steel from wherever you get it. You have to go to another country and get it and you have to pay a premium. Well, all of a sudden, that's an insurable risk. Right. So so supply chain's a big one. Uh, uh, let's see. Brand protection is another one right in this day and age with with how everyone wants to go online and write bad reviews about businesses, even if the business did nothing wrong and you've got to go hire a P- PR firm to go fight that fight for you. That's another one, dispute resolution, right? We live in a litigious society. If you're a business owner, statistically speaking, you're going to be sued at least once every seven years. That's usually the minimum, right? Uh, so set aside money for that rainy day because a lot of times your traditional insurance isn't gonna cover that. So those are the types of things we see them put in in addition to their general liability, commercial auto depending, you know, we'll look at the risk profile and say, hey, these are the things you should at least consider looking at self-insuring through an A31B.
1: I, I'm, I'm impressed by you, man. you uh, you you really have explained something that is uh, rather complicated in a really good way and I appreciate you doing that And you know it's uh it's the uh it's the promise of the show to deliver the inside track the best smartest and fastest way to get something done this the whole concept of self insurance uh it's it's a it's a little known concept that probably needs to be better known uh, and when you think about how much it's all around us anyway you have lived up to the promise of the show and when somebody lives up to the promise, Uh, we call those people advantage players and that makes you an advantage player so thank you very much for uh, sharing with us and you know provide our uh, provide our listeners with all the background that that you provided them and uh, your info will be in the show notes so people can reach out to you if they'd like to thanks joel it's been great i appreciate it awesome you've been
0: listening to profit from the inside with joel block for more insights and to learn more Visit joelblock.com.
1: How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audivita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A acom
0: Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect
1: your voice to the world.